You know, if you have been tuned to the January 6th hearings, we're giving you a break to hear about somewhere else across the world. Bhutan is a Buddhist nation, and this year marks 400 years of the establishment of a central monastic body that helped Bhutan's move to independence in the 17th century. That anniversary is a big one, and today we hear from a Kauai filmmaker and author set to embark on a three-year journey to help preserve the stories of that nation. John Warheim is a guest we've welcomed here before. He's in Europe for a traveling exhibit that opened at the U.S. Embassy in Prague, featuring his Taylor Camp photos as part of a global youth movement of the 1960s. This weekend, he heads to Bhutan to sign a contract for a film and book project interviewing the spiritual leaders, the master monks of that country. We talked to Warheim earlier this summer about the idea that he pitched a decade ago and is now moving closer to reality. You know, we produced the film for PBS, Bhutan Taking the Middle Path to Happiness, which uh, won two Emmy Awards. And I've also got a book on Bhutan's. I started working in Bhutan actually as a hydropower engineer in 1991, but my main motivation to be in the country was to film and photograph and write. But, you know, I also love engineering. So it was just a dream for me to be, you know, working in the country and to have that kind of access. I had access in Bhutan that, as an engineer, that a photographer and filmmaker and writer could never get. So I kind of overstepped my boundaries a little bit because I didn't get permission to, to do what I did. And the book is, it is still very popular in Bhutan, but um, I proposed another project. And the project was uh, another film and book project and also an archive project, in other words, uh, that we would do a documentary project on the great monks of Bhutan. I proposed this, it's going on, it's about, it was about 10 years ago. And uh, the title is uh, Living Masters of the Hidden Lands, Bhutan's Great Lamas, Hermits, and Yogis. And um, I had great support. You know, I was working with a lot of, and sponsoring um, a lot of Bhutanese students and monks at the East-West Center. They were living at our house, uh, both here in, Man in Manoa and, uh, and on Kauai. So we, we had a lot of personal relationships with, with Bhutanese people. Um, our daughter, I've started a, uh, a, a tour, a, a yoga and meditation tour with one of the East West Center students, but we couldn't even get a response from the government about my proposal. Nothing, just, just silence. Crickets. So I just thought, okay, yeah, crickets, crickets. <laughs> so I thought, oh, they're mad at me. Uh, for this first project, even though everyone was raving about it, you know, the unauthorized. <laughs> yeah, because I thought, okay, I did technically break the rules. I'm never going to be able to work in Bhutan again. I'll just enjoy myself. Okay, it's fine. I can still go as a tourist. Well, March, I get a call from Bhutan. Oh, when can you start your master's project? So I haven't heard from you guys for 10 years. Oh, yeah, well, the monastery, the, the, the chief lama and everyone's all excited about your project now because it's the 400th anniversary of the establishment of Bhutan as a separate kingdom from Tibet. And, it, and this is a huge thing. And basically, the stars weren't aligned until now. And they just, okay, you know, and I, and I explained, you know, I got this huge thing in Prague and all the rest of this, but he said, well, you got, this is the 400th anniversary, you got to at least come here and sign the MOU, but this is a dream come true for me to have access to, and we've also modified it a little bit. 
this list of masters that we're going to be interviewing will now include yoginis, uh, women nuns. Um, there are, and they've been, you know, it's kind, of, it's kind of time. You know, they're, they're hip enough and well aware enough of, uh, of the ascendancy of women worldwide to understand how important it is to include their nuns. And some of these nuns have gotten, uh, are prominent in the culture as teachers. So for me, that's fabulous. You know, and it'll make it easier to fund. It expands the whole scope, and uh, and so I'm I'm really excited about this thing. And and it's uh, it's a film, and we're going to it'll be sort of a uh, sort of a documentary, but uh, sort of a narrative film too. The idea, the script we're working on is it'll be sort of the epic of Gilgamesh type of thing, where you know, or the 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 young seeker. So we're, I'm looking to find a lead person to play. To tell the story. To tell the story where this young, maybe monk or maybe layperson, we haven't quite worked out, just is, is going on this mission, on this trek, on this literally pilgrimage from, you know, what, one lama or hermit or yogin to these various temples and caves and you know I mean, you can imagine it's such a beautiful country you know just, and, and just trying to understand enlightenment so you'll you need a point of view yeah and then you'll let the story and the history unfold around that yeah because i don't know what these teachers are going to say but that's the idea you know so we, we go on this quest with this young seeker this is a three-year project. This is a huge thing. I mean, a lot of these masters, uh, they don't live anywhere near a motor road. So just the logistics of work, you know, what kind of equipment, you know, how are we going to charge the batteries and how, you know, what, what kind of server connections are we going to use? And everything's going to have to be uh, stored in Bhutan and then stored on servers back in Hawaii. And because, uh, see, what the, what the monastery, what the monks want actually more uh, than the film and the book, they want the transcripts from everything. And they want the original recordings from everything, you know, because they've, they've uh, this will be, you know, the, the final word on the living masters of this era, uh, which is, and, and the Drukpa Kagyu in Bhutan, the Buddhist um, sect there has been very oral up until now. I mean, there's a lot of written stuff, but nothing like this. Okay. So it's, it, it's, it's a book, a film, but for them, it's an archive. So it's an oral history. Um, how do you work the language? Uh, well, on the first Bhutan film that we did is uh, we get everything translated and we use subtitles. You know, I, most of these masters will not be speaking in English. Matter of fact, I don't think there'll be any English spoken between our uh, our seeker and and the masters that they're that they're seeking from. Um, so that will have to all all be subtitles. But um, I'm assuming uh, I think that we're going to be we're looking for um, a lead person um, that will that is sort of urban and sophisticated so the uh, urban and sophisticated audience can identify with this uh, pilgrimage. So you talk about audience, so really the primary audience, the people of Bhutan, 
but then you want to be able to share that story to the we world. We assume that this will be another PBS film. That was Kauai author, photographer, and filmmaker John Warheim, who heads to Bhutan this weekend to begin work on a documentary to mark the 400th anniversary of the beginnings of today's Bhutan. Support for HPR comes from Costco Air Conditioning and Refrigeration, serving Hawaii since 1961, featuring Daikin Air Conditioning Systems. Listing of contractors who install Daikin products at CostcoHawaii.com. We turn our attention now to the general election. Fun fact about the two contenders for the Hawaii County Council seat, District 2, they both went to the same high school, not here in Hawaii, but in Davis, California. We heard from former battalion fire chief Matthias Kush yesterday, and uh, he was a year behind Jen Kagiwara at Davis High School. A mere 40 votes separate the two in the primary election. Kagiwara works as a legislative assistant for the county council. She believes housing is a top issue. So both for residents of Hawaii Island and for Hilo, I think, you know, it's for me it's about supporting working families mostly. So that means... Um, issues around affordable housing obviously that's all over the state um, and that means not just building which we do need to do but there's a lot of things we can do at the county council level things like tightening restrictions on short-term vacation rentals so that hopefully more of that stock comes back for people to rent um, for our residents to rent or for people to purchase um, we can tax vacant properties that have just been sitting there um, unused that are already built and another thing i've been looking at is separating out um, timeshares from apartment buildings currently they are in the same real property tax category together and so if we want timeshares to pay their fair share as more of a resort and vacation kind of property we currently have to also raise taxes on apartment buildings and i would like to separate those two so we can tax them appropriately. Another thing for working families is good jobs. And that means jobs that, you know, pay enough so that people can go home after their 40-hour work week and pay their bills and stay in Hawaii. But it also means jobs that are flexible and support people who have responsibilities for keiki or kupuna. Um, the pandemic really reprioritized I think family over work for many people and I know when I had young children that was a huge issue for me when looking for a job was is there flexibility built in um, that allows me to still prioritize my family and the third thing is uh, high quality childcare and after school programs this is not something the county has um, particularly been much involved in in the past but our research and development department has about $9 million to support childcare in our county right now. And I think the council and the public should be uh, involved and aware of how it's being spent. Um, and my background is actually in policy development for children um, going back away. So this is something that is of particular interest for me. And how do you see striking that balance between, you know, 
creating those jobs, those good paying jobs, you know, mm -hmm. with where we're at with tourism and over tourism, you know, and protecting mm -hmm. our natural resources? Yeah, well, I think we have to, and I think, you know, a lot of people agree with this right now, is we really need to emphasize tourism management over marketing, which is, you know, in the past we've done much more marketing. It's not that we just want more and more tourists. We would like better tourists. <laughs> and better meaning more respectful, better meaning maybe they, you know, uh, spend more money here, those kind of things. But, you know, our unique and sacred places need the respect and and to be prevented from overuse, we can do so much, right? We can manage this by, you know, using permits for places like Waipio or Kahalu'u, perhaps other places that we know have been affected by overuse on our island can, you know, have fees for parking, things like that. And we can do some scheduled rest days that would allow the environment to rejuvenate itself as we saw, you know, happen during the pandemic. So I think some of those things are really important to look at managing tourism. Yeah, you mentioned YPO, and that is kind of a flashpoint right now. How do we make it work? You know, weighing safety with people's right to access that area, and then people who want to just protect it as well. So YPO is actually in the district where I, I currently work. So it is very much on everybody's minds in my office and the issue is that people want access to the beach but the people that live and own property down there are really tired of people you know who don't know how to drive that very arduous road people who park illegally people who leave trash things like that and so if there could be for instance a shuttle and people would have to take the shuttle and they just get dropped off at the beach and then picked up so that they're not parking there, they're not driving that road, it's only, you know, licensed shuttle drivers that would do it. Something like that might be a possibility, but of course the biggest thing right now is to make sure the public is really involved. That's what's super important, that everybody gets their say that's involved in this issue um, and are heard. And um, it's going to take a little time to work through it, but I think... Um, that, that it can be done with some time and effort. What do you think uh, the county should be doing when it comes to climate change and the challenges that um, we're going to be faced with going forward? There's many things, but one of the things for our island in particular, I think it's really important to support these like community emergency response teams or search teams. Our island is just too big for emergency personnel to be everywhere quickly. So in some places could be cut off from those services in disaster situations. So it's really important that the communities themselves have some knowledge and training and resources to respond to a natural disaster. And then I think on the more preventative long-term side, we must do, you know, everything we can to slow down and try to stop climate change. Um, I was involved in working on a bill, which is the first in the state, not, not so often we're the first in the state, but first in the state to expand EV electric vehicle charging stations around the island. And this was needed to encourage more folks to buy electric, but it's also a big equity issue for those who want to take advantage of the considerable savings of owning an EV, but they may not have the ability to charge at home. They may live in an apartment building or be a renter. And so people um, that don't have that ability really count on those public electric vehicle charging stations if they would want to own an electric vehicle. And what more should we be doing to get people off cesspools? Cesspools, yes. Huge issue for our island, as you know. 
Um, our island has more than any other island. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, just here in Hilo, the number of brown water advisories seems to have increased lately. The pollution in the bay is just untenable, and we need to do so much about it. But specifically about cesspools, it's going to also be a long slog with a lot of involvement from a lot of parties. But like, for instance, there's one thing right now that we've been looking into, which is uh, a fund at the state health department where the e- I believe it's the EPA is funding it. And it would allow the counties to provide forgivable loans for people to convert off of cesspools. And we've been looking at what department on the county level might be able to work on something like this because we need a department to work with us. But I think that's, you know, one thing that that fund is fairly small right now, but it is expected to grow as the need grows. So we would like to get involved that way to help people who can't afford getting off cesspools to start doing that. The primary election, you know, was a close race for you and your competitor. And I know yeah. you ran into him the other night canvassing the streets over there. Uh, <laughs> what is it, do you think, that sets you apart? Yeah. So it's, it's actually really a very interesting tidbit is also that we both are not originally from here. We actually both grew up in the same town on the mainland and went to the same high school, if you can believe it. Wow. So, yeah, it's very unusual. Um, so we And we do have some, I think, similar ideas about some of the issues. What sets me apart is that, you know, being a council member is about creating policy and laws that improve the lives of residents. And I have direct experience doing this with the county of Hawaii in my current role. You know, I'm a legislative assistant in District 1, which covers the area north of Hilo, including like Kamakua. But I love Hilo. I've raised my children here. And now I want to give back and get to work for the people of District 2, which is where I live. So that's really for me why I'm doing this. And my experience is what I think sets me apart. That was Jen uh, Kagiwara, who is running for Hawaii uh, County District 2. Uh, you will get a chance to see the uh, county candidates side-by-side side tomorrow in a Zoom forum conducted by the Hawaii Island Chamber of Commerce. I believe that uh, meeting is set for 9 a.m. Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally-based customer care team. Learn more at Mobi.com. Joining us for today's Reality Check is Blaze Level. He's here to talk about the emergence of a new political action committee. Good morning, Blaze. Hey, good morning, Catherine. So, gosh, every time we turn around, there seems to be a new one. Yeah, it's almost like whack-a-mole trying to keep track of all of them. But, you know, you know, this all kind of started because a lot of us in the office, we started getting these, you know, text messages on our phone that we didn't sign up for. And uh, one was headlined something like, are you done with corrupt politicians like Josh Green? And, you know, they all kind of made us stop and think and go, hmm. And obviously it's from a super PAC. And whenever we see ads like this, you know, we want to know who's behind it. Where's the money coming from? 
you know, what are they doing here? And so, the, you know, for listeners out there, if you've been getting these, uh, you know, text messages, this is kind of why I wanted to do this story. You know, it's from this new super PAC called Hoy Conservatives. It's from um, a candidate named Tim Dollhouse. He ran for Senate uh, for Brian Schatz's U.S. Senate seat in the primary. He lost to Bob McDermott. Um, his partner in that venture, his name is Joel Borquist. He's a he's a um, conservative uh strategist dollhouse is from north carolina uh Bordquist, uh worked on campaigns in virginia and both live here now though they're quite kind of recent transplants but um you know dollhouse is kind of spending a lot of his own money to bankroll uh, this super PAC. So it's not something that's like, you know, we talked a lot about Be Change Now and the carpenter's money and, um, you know, other unions funding PACs or other industries. Uh, this A lot of it's actually from Dollhouse himself, and he kind of sort of also spent a lot of money, you know, bankrolling his own Senate race. I think he owns some kind of project management company over um, on the Big Island. But, you know, they say that that's what they want to differentiate themselves from other super PACs out there is they're, you know, they're not, I guess, being influenced by dark money or anything like that. But it, a lot of it is from, you know, their own contributions or donations they're able to get. And we're not talking the millions that we saw that um, was being thrown around over in the primary. These are thousands of dollars. Yeah, yeah. It's fairly low dollar amounts for, um, you, you know, a high profile race like this. I think so far they've contracted for about $8,800, 8800 thousand eight hundred dollars uh for this text message campaign that they're running and uh, you know again most of it's being paid for by um dollhouse uh and they're getting very little you know outside funding but just back to those text message campaigns uh real quick you know josh green responded to them because they came up during the k and two debate last week and you know he said uh, if you look at their website, and we explain this in the article that, uh, you know, they clipped together some um, speech that he gave at a college on the mainland, and it's kind of painted in a certain way to make it look like he's uh, disrespectful, I guess. And, you know, obviously he's saying it was taken out of context. If you watch the full video, you know, it's not like that. He explains that, you know, he's he's very proud of Hoy's graduates. You know, he's very proud to live here. And he, he's talked a lot about that. So it's that kind of thing. Uh, uh, Green says that they're twisting things. Right. And it's kind of ironic, right? Because we know that the attack ads so far this election season haven't worked. You saw how much money B. Change now spent, um, you know, going after Sylvia Luke. And I, I, I asked the guys this, like, you know, this has happened. You know, why are you? Kind of, kind of like, why are you doing this? And Joel Borquist said, well, yeah, you know, he, he agrees, ironically, that you know, attack ads have not worked, but in, in his view, there's a certain way you could do it where it, it might possibly be more effective. Now, whether or not how, whatever they're doing is going to be effective, you know, that's still yet to be seen. And like you mentioned, you know, they're not um, pumping millions and millions of dollars to flood the airwaves. This is a relatively, uh, you know, cheap campaign that they're doing, but we'll see how effective or not it is. And, you know, I know that the candidates are not supposed to really coordinate with these PACs, but yeah, I wonder what Iona thinks about it, if it's going to help or hurt him. Right, and that's so yet to be seen. And, you know, they they actually said they decided recently to wait into the governor's race. When Dollhouse and Borquist formed this, they wanted to help out 
legislative candidates. So they're running ads opposing people like Matt Lepresti and Sharon Haar, and they're also supporting two other GOP candidates on Oahu. Okay, and then we should remind our voters that uh, Sharon Haar and Matt Lepresti were charged uh, with uh, uh, driving under the influence. Right. And they right, both yeah, they're both arrested in the last years, and they've both been acquitted, correct? Yeah, so yeah, be interesting to see uh, how, how that goes in that race, and, and if uh, <laughs> the Super PAC's uh, money to help uh, boost them uh, uh, will work, as you said. Um, but yeah, all right, so new Super PAC uh, on the horizon, and uh, we'll see how, ro- how long they stick around. Right. All right, well, thank you so much, Blaze. Yeah, thanks again. That was reporter Blaze Level with uh, today's reality check. Uh, to read the full story, go to civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the new Hawaii Island Community Health Center, committed to providing Hawaii Island's ohana with comprehensive health care, island-wide. HICommunityHealthCenter.org. You are back with the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. Vivian Iona knows something about the job as First Lady. As wife of Lieutenant Governor James Duke Iona, she often stepped up when asked by Governor Linda Lingle, who was single at the time she served in office. We got to thinking about this because if former First Lady Vicki Cayetano had become governor, former Governor Ben Cayetano would have been first gentleman. Recent segments on former First Ladies Jean Ariyoshi and Beatrice Burns led us to reach out to both potential First Ladies, Jamie Green and Vivian Iona. Iona uh, has uh, been uh, second lady for two terms. She had a career with the airlines as a flight attendant while raising four children and now eight grandchildren. She sits as a director on the Washington Place Foundation. In other states, they say second lady. And I was very comfortable to step in, especially if it has anything to do with social services, families, in the community, you know, anything that I thought was appropriate for me to share with and be with others and if I had any insight in the topic. So not officially, but uh, in any capacity, uh, just I believe you need to be willing to serve and serve with Aloha, and I hope I did that. Yeah, so when you were tapped, uh, you just rose to the occasion. She said, absolutely. (laughs) That was the reply. And so, you know, gosh, you know, we have the Washington uh, Place Foundation, and you're a member uh, of that group just because of the the history uh, of what was the governor's mansion. Yes. I was um, blessed to be on the board. Such great, great people trying to preserve this special place. Uh, if you've never been there, I know they have tours. I think it's down to once a week. But I would encourage everyone, if you don't feel the presence of the queen, then uh, I don't know, you, didn't, you weren't born with chicken skin at all. <laughs> it is uh, important. It is so precious. Just to think what she went through in that home. And she'll always be my favorite because she chose peace for her people. She didn't want to lose 
any more of her people and I always admire her for that. I was fortunate enough to go on a recent tour when they reopened the upstairs and the, the thing that I was struck by, what I loved the, the most, was the display of first families that lived there. You know, just to see the history, you know, all the first ladies had hosted so many dignitaries over the years. Jean Ariyoshi shared some of her stories and so it was just really nice to see the role that the first ladies played and, and first families played, you know, in, in our history and, and you know, living there in that home. Yes, we spent a lot of time there, a lot of functions there. The time Duke was in office, I had one in college, and then a year later, this second one went off. So we had, uh, you know, a 10-year-old and a 14-year-old that, however, it's an honor. It really is an honor just to be in that capacity to represent, to be an ambassador, to just show aloha to the state and to all our visitors. It'll always be uh, part of my heart. And you know, you've raised four children. Mm-hmm. You have eight grandchildren. Yes. And so if your husband becomes the next governor, I mean, what would you be looking to uh, elevate? What, what are the issues you think are important to you? You know, especially during COVID, you know, I know that we were in a scary place. We've never been before or in this present time. And, you know, we had to be concerned for our kupuna. We had to be concerned for citizens with existing health issues, all of that. But my heart really was breaking for the families whose husband and wife work in the tourist industry. Shut down. You know, how were they paying their rent? You know, how were they paying if they had kids' tuition, if they had babysitters? Where did they move to? They moved in with in-laws, with aunties, uncles. So my heart was very concerned for those families and those children. Personally, uh, Duke and I jumped in, and he was tutoring the first grader at the time. And he would be in one room. Uh, my son's teacher at uh, high school. He's teaching his high school students in another room. And I had the two youngest grandkids downstairs trying to be quiet. So for me, my heart is really uh, just for any of the families, the social issues, any challenges they're having. I am a part of the Hawaii uh, Fetal Alcohol Spectrum Disorder Action Group. And a few years ago, you know, before 2008, they had moved forward and then, you know, the economy went down a bit and they uh, dissolved and in the last few years they're making a great move and I would want to see them you know front and center along with all the other popular walks and runs I want fetal alcohol to be in the forefront of a lot of people's minds it's that important do you have a a personal story about that or a connection no I don't you know fetal alcohol is 100% preventable which you know everybody's looking for a cure for the other issues but this is when the mother consumes alcohol and the child is affected and born with disorders the part is that many of these children are adopted or there's a stigma for women who maybe weren't planning a pregnancy and were enjoying their regular you know alcohol intake if it was a little or a lot, however, these children succumb to it. So it's easy to say, you know, don't, like, don't drink and drive. You know, don't drink if you're planning a pregnancy, if you're hoping to have a child. Don't have a crystal ball, but 
I would like just the awareness and the support to be there for these families who are challenged. It sounds like you're all about family. You make me think about also I, my concern about those kids who were home during COVID and, you know, they had to get online. And who were they home with? I can't, I can't imagine. Was it auntie or uncle or somebody who really was not capable of caring and nurturing this child? You know, I grew up with a mom who had mental illness. So I feel like I've had a great experience. Uh, it runs alcohol having a parent who's an al- alcoholic or a drug addict. But in the case of mental illness, it's, it's not their fault. And back in those days, medication was what it was. But I have to put a shout out. I have to praise my dad for s- staying by her side and walking through it with her and with all of us. And I, I think there are a lot of spouses, husbands or wives, who couldn't handle that. So, you know, all praise to him. So mental health means a lot to me as well. You know, I have my eye on that. Mm -hmm. I'd like to help in any way I could. So how are you looking at this election? You know, because your husband has run before and you know uh, campaigning takes a lot out of the family. Uh, It's a commitment. And uh, he came out of retirement because he just felt he needed to serve. Uh, It was not an easy easy decision. You know, we are at the new season in life, really enjoying uh, all of it, you know. My husband especially, you know, he got to fine-tune his interests and his causes and just really enjoying life at this time. However, we care so much about our state. We, we can't ignore it. We're always paying attention to all the issues, and it troubles us, troubles him especially. So I have no doubt in Duke's ability to serve as a great governor. I would love to see what flourishes from all of it. The ups and the downs, the challenges, who knew COVID would come? Who knows? You know, this inflation, this recession. Uh, yes, many challenges, but that's where the great leader needs to step up. Uh, it was late in the calling, but he answered the calling, and uh, we are 100% behind him. Was there was it any one thing that you think caused him to jump in? I mean, was it just the I don't know, the the disrespect and the discourse that, you know, the way people were treating each other? Oh. I mean, I don't know the, the the divisiveness within parties, you know, with the two parties and uh Duke has said this many times and I agree 100%, you know, where is the aloha? You know, I worked Uh, for an airline for 25 years, you know, customer service, you know, aloha spirit, you know, it's part of, you know, that industry. It's part of all of us. Everyone would talk about it. You know, go to Hawaii. You, you, you're going to discover the aloha spirit. Where is it gone? People are jumping out of cars and fighting and worse than that. In government, we're not hearing I think enough or different solutions, different ideas. It just keeps rolling and all the issues that he ran for back in 2002, are we not seeing the same inflation and housing, et cetera, et cetera. So I feel this is his time. I'm excited to to see what uh, the future is gonna look like under you know this Kekioka Aina. So yeah. it's really a shout out to those 500,000 people who just never vote, 
or become so discouraged. So this is their turn. This is their time to step up and get get registered and vote with the rest of us because we care. And that was Vivian Iona, wife of former Lieutenant Governor Duke Iona, who is running for governor in the general election. And fun fact, uh, Vivian says the grandchildren call her husband Tutu Man. Tutu Man, I like that. Tomorrow we get to know Jamie Green, wife of Lieutenant Governor Josh Green. Did you know she's an attorney? And that's it for our show today. I'm Catherine Cruz. 